Okay, I'm recording. I'm going to read the thing. The tent had been destroyed, cut open from the inside and the canvas in tatters. It had been half torn down and filled with thick snow. Tracks led away from it through the deep snow, but the tracks made no sense. They were left by people wearing only a single shoe, or socks, or completely barefoot. Articles of warm clothing were scattered, abandoned in the below-zero temperatures. The baffled search party had been hoping to find their friends alive, but that hope was quickly dispelled as they followed the tracks. There had been ten when they had set out, all students or former students at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, all experienced climbers and skiers. The hikers had set out on January 25, 1959, heading up to ski the beautiful Ural Mountains. Two days later, one of their number was forced to turn back due to health issues, while he bitterly regretted missing out on the trip with his friends. The decision would save his life. On the night of February 1st, they made camp on the side of the mountain, eager to set out in the morning and enjoy a beautiful day of hiking and skiing. None would live to see sunrise. Their bodies were found in various states of undress, and some with severe damage to their faces and skulls. To this day, no one knows what happened to those adventurous youths on the dark, frozen mountain that night. Thanks so much for that horrifying story, Greg. And welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Relative Disaster University's Distinguished Professor of Hiking. And I'm Greg, Relative Disaster Corporation's Hiking Safety Instruction Consultant. So today we are going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. That's right. Today we're going to Soviet Russia. Yes. February 1959, middle of the winter. A wonderful time and place. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> the Dyatlov Pass incident is the mysterious death of nine Soviet Russian hikers by what was determined by the state to be, quote, a compelling natural force, end quote. And whatever that means is up to lots of interpretation. <laughs> there have been lots of interpretations. We're going to cover them all. So let me uh, take you away, Greg. This takes place in the USSR in the late winter of 1959. So we're talking Khrushchev has succeeded, Stalin, and... There's this really interesting kind of renaissance going on, especially in the arts and technology and sports. Stalin is out, you know, people are a little more able to hike. <laughs> Which is nice, you know, when you can do that. It's a good time, or a better time. Uh, so most of this group that we're going to talk about, with one exception, they all went to school together or were very recent alumni of the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Sverdlovsk, which is a city in central Russia near the Ural Mountains. It's called Ekaterinburg now, but back in the day it was Sverdlovsk, so that's what we're going to use. Plus, I just like saying it. Sverdlovsk. I'll be uh, using a heavy American accent throughout this. <laughs> <laughs> so... Just to warn our Russian listeners. <laughs> so all of the members of this group were members of their university's sports club. And this was not a casual hike. They planned it to earn state certification in ski hiking. Yes. So it wasn't just like a weekend away. They were using their winter break to actually go out there, get some miles, and become masters of ski hiking. The route that they chose was not an easy route either. This is a very tricky uh, area to be hiking in, especially in late January. Right. 
And everyone in the group was very experienced. They had all been on multiple hikes in this region before. They were in this this sports club, so they had also like swapped stories with other people who had been hiking this route. And Igor Dyatlov had actually been on this route or almost this route before, not in the winter, but in the summer. Yeah. So I want to give you just a quick overview of the group. We can start with Igor Dyatlov. He's the team leader. He's a radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute. He's super smart. He's very organized and he's also very social. He's friends with everyone. It seems like from his diary and just from hearing the way people talk about it, that he's one of those people who both loves nature and loves to be outdoors, but also really likes people. Sure. And he also writes a lot about animals and plants, kind of in his diaries and letters home. He's He's got kind of a poet's kind of attitude towards nature. He just seems like a sweet guy. Yeah. Next, we have Yuri Doroshenko. There are three Yuris on this group, so try and keep them all straight. We're going to use last names with the Yuris. Yuri Doroshenko is a radio engineering student. He's also an avid hiker. Uh, He's a little bit famous in their club because he fought off a bear with a hammer on a previous trip. I did read about that. Which is the most Russian thing I have ever heard of. (laughs) He chased off a brown bear with a geologist hammer, which, which for a brief time won the heart of... Zenaida. Zenaida? Zena. She goes by Zena. And confusingly, Zena has a pet name for Yuri Duroshenko. She calls him Yurka. Okay. Uh, so he's her ex boyfriend. And she writes, she mentions in her letters home that she hadn't known that he was going to be on this trip. And if she had known, she probably wouldn't have gone. And it sounds like there's a little bit of drama on her side. Uh, yeah, it can be a little uncomfortable. Yuri Duroshenko doesn't seem to be too bothered one way or the other fair enough uh, he's got his hammer he doesn't need anything more out of life <laughs> okay we're gonna go to Ludia dubinia she's the youngest of the group she's only 20 uh she's an economics student and she is also very tough she got shot by mistake on an earlier hike in siberia and had to survive a 50 mile hike out to see a doctor that's her bear with a hammer story and she's also She's really small. If you see her in pictures, she's like half the size of the others. And the others are not big people. She's just a teeny tiny person with a huge backpack. Uh, but next we have Georgi Krivonachenko. He's nicknamed Yura. He's a hydraulic student and he's kind of the party guy of the group. Yes. He brings his mandolin on the trip. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> so next we have Alexander Kolovatov. He's a nuclear physics student. Uh, and he seems a little prickly. Um, He's very quiet and reserved. He keeps a private diary. No one else is allowed to see. (laughs) Um, But he does get along with the others. And they mention kind of that he's in a bad mood or whatever. But he always comes through for them. Okay. Next we have Zina Kolmorgorova. She's a radio engineering student like Igor Dyatlov. She writes most of their travel log and she's very funny. Uh, She has kind of an eye for a little bit of dark humor. Yeah. Uh, she's also very stylish. There's a great photo of her on an earlier hiking group, and she has these, like, insane sunglasses on. <laughs> so <laughs> That's awesome. She's also super tough. She survived a snake bite on an earlier hike. I feel like there must have been, like, one epic earlier hike where there were, like, bears and snakes all over the place. I feel like they're Russian, so it's like... You know, in order to go out and challenge the Russian wilderness, you've got to have at least three or four of these stories. You got to do it right. Well, just just because you know, <laughs> it, it, it's it's not it's not the easiest 
climate. It is not. Just in general. And yeah, you're going to get snake bites. You're going to get brown bears. I would stay indoors, but these guys are much tougher than I am. (laughs) (laughs) So next we have a couple of kids who just graduated. So they're 20, 22, 23. Uh, The first is Rustek Slobodin. He is a mechanical engineer. He's kind of the rich kid of the group. His parents are college professors. Okay. And Kolya Nikolai Thibodeau Brignoles. He is a civil engineer. Like Zena, he has kind of a dark sense of humor that you can see in his letters home. He is a grandson of a French engineer with the same last name. So he has lots of family kind of outside the Iron Curtain. And I believe he's the one that Stalin disappeared one of his relatives. Oh, yeah. I read in one source that he was actually born in a gulag, but I couldn't find that in any of their sources. I do like that story, though. Uh, So next we have Alexander Zolotaryov, who goes by Semyon. He's our mystery man. He's much older than this group. He's 38. Yep. And he says that he just kind of got dropped by his planned group. He's after the same certification that these guys are. He's a friend of Igor's and he's just, he wants to get the certification. He knows he has to get this hike in. So he just kind of shows up on the train and Igor is like, hey, he's coming with us. And everyone else is like, all right. He is also a kind of social guy. He's got great stories. He knows a lot of songs. He seems to be just kind of a charming, sketchy guy, kind of guy, and everyone seems to like him. Good. He's also a World War II veteran, and he has a very shady military record. Oh, okay. To the point where there's some question as to whether the person who died is actually the person who has this name. Oh, well, we're going to get into the fun speculations we'll get into the theories but goodness <laughs> what and then our last hiker is yuri yudin he's a geology student he is hiking for his health so he's trying to get back into better health uh he has a number of ailments uh rheumatism is the one he's struggling with at this point yes the group puts him in charge of the medicine so he's their medic and he's like a really quiet gentle sensitive guy so there's our group And one of the things that makes this story so interesting is that they leave behind a lot of records. Yes. There's diaries, there's photographs, there's a ton of evidence left behind. Right. They're all kind of documentarians. And part of that is just that they're on this amazing trip. They want to make sure they have a record. And part of it is because they know they need to prove to their hiking club that they actually made this trip. So they're keeping this detailed trip log and they're taking pictures And they're also keeping these diaries and they're writing letters and postcards home at the same time. Uh, Since 2009, this has all been in the public domain. So you can actually look at scans of their diaries if you would like to. Yes. And the other thing that I like about this trip is the photos because I think four of them bring cameras along. And they are taking like the exact same kind of photos that people put on Instagram. They're taking selfies and group pictures and pictures of their tent and equipment. They're like posing for funny pictures that show that they're like. (laughs) I mean, it's a group of kids. Yeah. And they're having a great time. Right. And then I think the eeriest one is that. So Igor Dyatlov was one of the ones who brought a camera with him. Mm -hmm. And he actually has a photograph of them digging the trench for their last camp. Mm -hmm. You can... There's three people or four people digging in the snow. And the snow is, you know, what they're digging in, the snow is up past their, you know, waists. Mm -hmm. And 
it looks bad. Like, it looks like the weather is really bad in the photograph. It, it looks like they're getting pulled at by wind. It looks like there's, if not an active snowfall right then and there, it just looks miserable. Mm-hmm. And that's the last picture that he took. Mm. And I think also because they're all engineering students, they want to like make records of where they camped and how they set the tent up. And also their tent was like a DIY job. Oh. Uh, so Igor designed it himself to sleep 11 people in one tent. I didn't know that. He also built the stove. <laughs> uh, and I guess the tent was more successful than the stove because a lot of the mentions of it in the diary and the letters are like, the stove does not work. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> It took us five hours to make tea. <laughs> and you can tell from the pictures. Yeah. The thing that really strikes me is these guys are babies. They're, they look so, so young. They look so young and so enthusiastic. Just so happy to be there and busting out of their skins at how exciting this is. So their paper trail begins actually back in early December of uh, 1958. And they set up a plan where they're going to cross almost the whole state of Sverdlovsk Oblast, which is 346 miles. They're going to do 320 miles on the train, another 10 by bus and truck. And then they're going to ski and hike to the top of a mountain called Otorten, which is a 4,000 footer. Incidentally, the name of this mountain in the local indigenous Mansi language is, don't go there. <laughs> That's the mountain they're heading for. Don't go there. And they don't go there. <laughs> they're going for don't go there, but they wind up on Kolatsiako. Oh, dear. Which in the Mansi language means dead mountain. So it's just a real great neighborhood full of fun times. Yeah. I don't know, man. Most of these are, are three to 4,000 feet. And yikes. And it's the middle of the winter. And it's the middle of the winter. Hiking in the winter is actually really beautiful. Yeah. The problem is that the weather can change really, really quickly. Yeah. So even on a small mountain like Otorten, which is 4,000 feet, you can get on it and then not be able to get off. You can get disoriented really easily and you can get stuck. So they actually have to get permission for this hike from the state. And they get that permission on January 8th. On January 23rd, the state sends them a route book, which is what they need. It's like an official map document with checkpoints and maps. Uh, and they immediately jump on a train and they set off that afternoon. Oh. So the state sends them the route book and they're like, all right, pack up. Okay. Again, they're like young and super enthusiastic. <laughs> also, they have to be back by the time classes start. So I think they just like want to get it done. So the first part of this trip is an overnight train ride. They are on a budget, <laughs> so they get third-class tickets, and they don't buy enough seats. So a couple of them have to keep hiding under the other seats from the conductor, <laughs> which I guess is how it was done, like if you were traveling on the cheap sure. back in the day. I did read that Ludia, because she was so much smaller than the others, was the person who got stuffed under the seat. <laughs> Fair enough. So when they get off the train in Ivdel, they take the bus to Vizhai, which is a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. They're in the northern Ural Mountains at this point. Yep. Vizhai is like the last place where you can send a letter. So they send postcards. They buy a lot of carbs and eat them. Yeah, bread especially. It was, there's bread. There's a big deal made out of <laughs> I the bread. I did read about bread. <laughs> 
Uh, the elevation isn't crazy at this point, but it's much higher and colder and windier than the areas that they passed through on the train or the areas that they were used to in the city. So they spend the day here to get acclimated and eat. And that's January 27th. So at this point, Yuri Yudin, who is their medic, who has rheumatism, he starts getting this severe joint pain yeah. and he realizes he can't go on with the hike. So he hands over his medical supplies and tells the group that he's going to wait for them back at school. And Dyatlov realizes that the weather is not as good as they had hoped. So he tells Yuri that they might be back like a few days late. So not to be concerned. Poor Yuri Yudin, who is the only person to survive this hike. Yeah. I really feel for him. He has survivor's guilt his whole life. He never gets married. He never has children. He spends his whole life talking about this. Yeah. He passes away eventually in 2013. Yeah, his whole life, you know, th this is one of those things that can just kind of break your spirit. And he, he really had a, uh, a hard time moving past any part of this. Yeah, because you look at the circumstances, these are his friends. And these are his classmates. And there is absolutely no rhyme or reason behind his survival. Other than he just didn't go up the mountain. Yeah. I really feel for Yuri. I do too. He, he seems, first of all, he seems like a nice guy. And second of all, it's just one of those things where... You know, we all have those moments where if I had just taken this train instead of that train, if I had turned left instead of right, and most of us wonder what would happen. And he knows. He's like, well, if I just toughed through it, I'd be dead. Right. And all of my friends died. And we still don't know why. Right. This is why this is such an interesting disaster, because we know what happened. We just don't know why. Right. We have all this information, but it's almost like a locked room mystery where you get like a lot of clues yeah. and you have to kind of sort through everything and you can make a million theories about what happened and there's no one theory that fits everything. So after Yuri leaves them, they set off from Vizhai on January 30th and they finish the main skiing part of the trip and they cache some stuff, but they keep the skis with them. So they're going to like alternate skiing when they can and then hiking for the return trip. And caching, caching food and equipment was a standard thing that you would do. Mm -hmm. You'd find a, a small area with, you know, some shelter to it and you'd leave a selection of supplies there so that on your way back, one, you're not carrying as much with you on your way up mm -hmm. and then on your way back down, you've got yeah, a little know, snack to look forward to. You leave presents for yourself. <laughs> exactly. Because it reduces the weight. Yeah, because you have to remember, all their food is, like, canned, so it's it's not light. Uh, but then after they've cached their things for the return trip, they start heading towards Otorten. Don't go there. Yes, they start heading towards Don't Go There Mountain, and they get blown off course. Well, they're following Mansi trails, which are hunting trails, and at some point the weather gets so bad... They get off course. Yeah, they turn west instead of east. They're actually climbing a neighboring mountain. The Mansi word, then this was a little a little linguistics fun here. So the Mansi word of, of kolat, that comes out as kolat, does mean dead, and it also means meager. Yeah, it's probably just a word that they came up with to show that there wasn't much game on the mountain. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It means, guys, don't bother going up here. There's, there's nothing to hunt. And it's common in that territory. There's actually three other hilltops and mountains in that area that all have kolat on them. But 
you know, for the purposes of telling a story, saying that people are hiking the dead mountain is, you know, it's closer to dead like 3 a.m. is a dead time, (laughs) Mm. not graveyards of people tumbling down the side. So they realize their mistake sometime in the late afternoon of February 1st. And this is where things get a little weird because instead of retreating to the tree line, they decide to set up tent on an open slope. Yeah, Yudin was asked, why didn't they go back down the mountain? Why didn't they retreat to the tree line where they would have had shelter and all that other stuff? And and his best speculation was that Dyatlov didn't want to lose the altitude or that he was practicing mountain slope camping. Oh, boy. This is the point, the evening of February 1st, where all the documentation just stops. Igor Dyatlov was supposed to contact the hiking club back at Ural Polytechnic Institute after the group made it back to Vizhai on February 12th, which was the date they were aiming for. But by then, Yuri Yudin was back in Sverdlovsk, and he's told the club that Dyatlov said they might be a few days late. So nobody is worried for the first few days. Dyatlov has a younger sister, Rustina, who is also a student in UPI, also a radio engineering student. And she and Igor are really close. She's the first one to feel uneasy about how late the group is. The other hikers' parents start worrying as well. Uh, Rustek's parents, the university professors, start putting pressure on the university. And then the club finally realizes around February 20th that something is seriously wrong. And the club and some other students all head into the area to start searching. They also put pressure on the school and the state government to start a formal search and rescue effort. And this happens really fast. It all happens in a few days once the club becomes concerned. Eventually the police and the military get involved. And then within a few days they have volunteers, helicopters, and police teams that are all kind of combing through the area where the group was last seen. And then Mikhail Sharavan finds the tent. Right. That's on February 26th. And to me, this is just like the worst part of the story because the guys who find the tent are friends of Dyatlov and the other hikers, and they've been hiking buddies with him and the others. They're experienced hikers themselves. They know the conditions up in the northern Urals, how isolated the site was and how difficult the weather could be. So when they find the tent and look inside and see nine pairs of hiking boots lined up on the far side... They just know without question that everyone in the group is dead. Yeah. So from this point on, it's a search for remains, uh, not a rescue mission. And everybody, as you said, they left their boots in the tent and ran outside. And this is where we get into the stuff about this that makes very little sense. Right. So this is the point where the documentation really picks up because everyone's here. They're taking notes. They're taking pictures. And there are footprints because it hasn't snowed between the time that the searchers have been looking. So it looks to the searchers like the group left the tent as fast as they possibly could. They cut their way out of the tent. They didn't even open the flap. Right. But that's not as, I don't know, I to me that indicated like extreme panic. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I read another source that said that the tent door laced up. They didn't have a zipper. So they were actually taught to cut the canvas because it's easier to repair. Yep. You can sew canvas back together easier. So in an emergency, just drag a knife up through the canvas and run. Right, because it would have taken a few seconds to unlace the tent door. So they follow the tracks, and unfortunately, they find human remains right away. So at the tree line, they find a burned-out campfire. Yep. 
and under a nearby tree are the remains of Yuri Doroshenko and Yura, and it's immediately assumed that they froze to death because they're dressed only in underwear and they're barefoot and the weather has dropped to minus 15 degrees over the last few weeks. Uh, there's some indication they had been wearing more clothes when they left the tent. Okay. But those clothes had been cut off. The pictures are rough. Just... The pictures are not recommended. Yeah. And they are photographed extensively. They're photographed extensively and they're photographed by the search party that located them. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is striking about all of them is that all of their skin is so badly frozen that it's significantly darkened. Yeah. One of the uh, rescue crew described it as having the color of old brick. And then a few hundred meters away in the snow, so between the campfire and the tent, are the remains of Zina, Rustek, and Igor Dyatlov. They do have a few pieces of clothing on. Dyatlov's wearing a vest, and Zina has on a pair of trousers. They're also very lightly dressed. They're not dressed to the point where they could have gotten back to the tent. And again, no boots. And no boots, yeah. And uh, Rustek has also suffered a concussion before he died. So at this point, the weather sets in again, and the searchers have to leave. And they've only found five of the nine hikers. And above where they had found Yuri and Yura, that's where there was the remains of a small fire. And the branches on the tree that they were found by were broken up, up to about five meters above, you know, snow level. So presumably... That's where they got the firewood. Yeah, or the other theory is that somebody had climbed up trying to look for something, you know, trying to either see where the camp was or if there were other survivors. And both of them were huddled together for warmth. They were found huddled together. But, you know, the human body can't provide enough warmth in those conditions. I mean, we're, we're not just talking sub-zero temperatures. We're talking significantly sub-zero temperatures. These are... It's not Arctic, but you can hit it from there with a rock, you know? it's <laughs> Right. For, as far as temperatures go, not... It's very, very cold. And there's no cover. It's extremely cold. They're right at the tree line. One of the records that survived about the actual weather at that time uh, is that it was about negative 30 degrees Celsius. Oh, boy. Which is just... I mean, you spit and it freezes on its way to the ground, you know? It's bad. And the wind was starting to pick up and... You know, they had no clothes on. Yeah. And the autopsy estimated that they did not suffer for very long. Yeah. That's the small mercy. So in May, a Mansi hunter comes across the remains of the other four hikers. That's Kolya, Semyon, Ludia, and Alexander Kolotov. And they're in a ravine nearby, kind of all together. They're in a river, right? Well, so it's described as like a stream, a little stream. Okay. Um, But they are, like, in the stream. They're in the water itself, yeah. Yeah, their faces are in the water. Uh, Ludia and Semyon have their faces in the water. There's, like, extensive tissue damage on their faces. And only Alexander Kolotov is found to have died of hyperthermia. Yeah. Kolya suffered a fatal head injury. And Semyon Zolotaryov and Ludia both died of chest trauma. Their ribcage were... Crushed. Just compressed in. Yeah. Right. But there's no outward sign of trauma. Like if they had fallen from a height into this ravine, you would expect to see broken skin. There's nothing like that. Uh, They just had been crushed. Uh, And the person who did the autopsy, the medical examiner, said it suggested a car crash or a concussion, like a bomb 
the kind of bomb that picks you up and flings you across the room. Uh, but again, there's no, there's nothing on their on their skins or their clothes that suggests that. And their their heads have all been pretty extensively damaged as well. They had extensive soft tissue damage, and they also had bruises kind of here and there, but nothing beyond what you would expect for people who had been hiking in the wilderness and people who'd been face down in in water and had in been water for four months. On. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the autopsies for the group agree that they all died within hours of leaving the tent, all within the same two-hour time frame. The medical examiner doesn't note any marks of a struggle or any signs that a weapon has been used on them. He does note that their clothing is radioactive. Mildly, mildly, mildly <laughs> radioactive. That That's the one that... Every single article about this group will mention this. I know. And it's it's a little frustrating because, I mean, for one thing... One of the guys was a was a right a nuclear engineering student, and he had worked in a plant. So yeah. you're just gonna pick up stuff from working in that environment, especially at that time. Right. It, it's and this is 1959. Yeah. And a lot of their camping equipment actually shed. Like the example that I found was that they were carrying lanterns, which are known to shed radioactive material from their wicks. Oh, jeez. They just. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're burning plutonium. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not the amount of radioactivity that's going to kill you or hurt you. It's just like, you know, a little spice. It's low-level radioactive stuff. Oh, my God. Uh, so the conclusion of the inquest is that all nine hikers died of, quote, a compelling natural force, which is my favorite cause of death ever. Yeah, that's a weird one. Uh, you can use it to explain any death you want. <laughs> Well, as opposed to a compelling unnatural force, which I can only assume would be something like you get hit by a train. Right. And the interesting thing is that during this inquest and the inquest which is reopened in 2019, the Russian state only considers weather-related causes of death, which... Yeah. I mean, they have access to all the evidence. They are experts. Sure. That's what they come up with. That's what they come up with. We'll discuss some alternate theories. Sure. Yeah, some of the alternate theories are way the hell out there. <laughs> and that's what we love on Relative Disasters, so you're going to get near full. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first thing that is suspicious about this is that the inquest is closed very quickly. So in May of 1959, so right after the autopsies on the last four victims are complete, yep. the files are sealed and put away. The press is instructed not to report on anything further than just a bare-bones account, the hikers' names, and where they died. And I actually dug into that uh, a little bit because that was one of the things I was like, well, why would that happen? Not only not only was the inquest officially ceased in 1959, but the files were sent to a secret archive. I love a Soviet Russian secret archive. Oh, holy cow. Doesn't that just suggest things to you? It suggests a lot of things. But unfortunately, it's one of those things where, you know, the reality is just much more boring than... Oh yeah, it's a closet. <laughs> so one of the reasons why the inquest was officially closed so quickly uh, was because they reasoned that they had all died of natural causes and in the absence of a guilty party under the law in Russia at that time, that meant it's over. Oh, that's so interesting. As, as long as there's nobody to prosecute, they don't keep going with an inquest. Which seems kind of like, yeah, but you know, maybe we'd like to know what happened so we could avoid this again. But they're like, hey, nope, this wasn't done by another human being. So 
I, we would we would encourage you all to forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> Off to the secret archive. Off to the secret archive. No worries. Yep, everything's fine. So like I said before, this is kind of the equivalent to a locked room murder mystery. And the evidence paints a really full and really weird picture. A lot of really weird pictures. <laughs> so many. Uh, we're going to cover a few theories. Uh, people who read about this story love, love, love to form a theory. And unfortunately, there's no clear answer as, like, there's no theory that... Fits absolutely everything. So let's start with the aliens. Let's start with aliens. Oh, so crap. people reported uh, balls of light <laughs> in the sky around the time that the Dialov group died. Strange orange spheres. The idea is that an alien spacecraft landed, scared them out of the tent, and then killed and experimented on them. Uh, that's where the head injury and the crush injury comes from. Sure. Um, and then flew away. They just dropped them off and flew away. The only problems with that are the same problems that happen every other time we have one of these sort of things. And it's if you have a visitor from another planet, why are you going here? Why are you going to rural Alabama? Why are you going to northern Montana? Why are you going to the Dyatlov Pass? Why you don't want you not... witnesses, Greg. I thought this was obvious. Sure. Okay. <laughs> it's because nobody's there that they like to hang out there. God. So this is one of the most irritating things because, like, <laughs> scientifically speaking, it would actually be completely shocking if we were the only form of life in the universe. Right. But, my goodness. <sighs> okay. Anyway. So you're saying you don't believe in aliens? I'm saying I don't believe that aliens came down here, crushed some people's chests, then deposited them back in the snow. And then left. Because there were no aliens when, when the searchers got there. Okay. Right. Yeah. If the searchers had gotten there. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about... How do you feel about Yeti? Is that the question you're about to ask me? How do you feel about Yeti? <laughs> so one of the photographs recovered from the group's cameras shows this shadowy human figure in the background. It's kind of half hidden behind a tree. Yeah. Uh, people have done some kind of like interesting metric comparisons to the figure. It looks like it's bigger and bulkier than the people in the group. Please remember, these guys are big and bulky. They have eight layers of wool coats on. Exactly. I, I'm actually looking at this photograph right now, and it's wonderful. And and yes, if you would like... It's like just humanoid enough. Yeah. If, if you would like to look at it and think to yourself, my God, we found photographic proof of the Yeti, then you go right ahead. To me, it is very obviously a person in heavy winter gear standing next to a tree like I, this this does not look at all like an unknown form of life so i think what you have to consider is that yetis love to hug people to death yes that's the other thing i had i had discounted that you're correct yeah and they are also a compelling natural force so they would actually fit in with the autopsy results very okay. nicely very nicely yes absolutely i'm team yeti i don't think it could have been anyone else okay Okay, we'll go with Team Yeti. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Smoke. So, as I mentioned before, the stove that the group was carrying... Yeah, the stove didn't work. ...was a DIY job that was Igor's baby. Um, he had been, like, tinkering with it the whole trip. Yep. The thought here is that it malfunctioned and filled the tent with smoke, and the group thought the tent was on fire, which would be horrible. Um, and that's why they slashed it open and ran out. Yep. 
but there's no evidence of smoke damage to the tent. And after they like exhausted themselves uh, setting up the tent, they had just had a cold supper. They had like um, slices of yeah, ham. The the stove was, was not being used. The stove wasn't even used yeah. that evening. Yeah, it had been packed up and put away. So it was still in its carrying case. And one of the things about the stove was that it took hours to like assemble and disassemble. So there's no way the tent filled with smoke and then someone was like, oh, let me take some time and disassemble the stove before we run out. Yeah, so it probably wasn't smoke. We all we all have that one project of ours, don't we? That one thing that we love despite <laughs> the fact that it's useless <laughs> and it's an inconvenience to everybody. And we yeah, still love we it. Just, we love it. You it know? was Igor's baby. I feel <laughs> Igor Dyatlov on his stove. I'm with you. I think it's I think it's kind of wholesome, Igor in his stove. Uh, but the stove was probably not the compelling natural force. Yeah. Uh, intoxication. Yeah, that was a big one. I actually really like this theory because it does fit. It fits the slashing your tent open and running barefoot into sub-zero temperatures. Those are certainly things that intoxicated or high people can do and have done. And I don't know if you ever went drinking with college students, but they, they can do some crazy stuff. <laughs> Especially Russian college students. Now, the big hole—the big hole in that theory—is that they actually weren't carrying much alcohol with them. The only alcohol, yeah. So they weren't carrying like what you would need to get everybody bombed in the middle of the exactly. Night. The um, only alcohol that they had with them was in their medical kit, and it was not used. It was not like they had had a raging bender on a tiny, tiny bit of bourbon. Also, there isn't any mention in their photos, diaries, or the log of any alcohol or drug consumption. That's maybe like, you could overlook that in the log, but if you're getting wasted in the wilderness on your hike, you're mentioning that in a letter or a personal diary. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you're saying, God, I'm hungover. I don't want to be on this hike. <laughs> it's going to come up at some point. There's none of that. Um, in any of the written material and there's no evidence in any of the photographs of any alcohol or drug consumption and third it just doesn't seem to fit with their personalities uh no they're all outdoorsy these people. were pretty focused yeah. and they're yeah. they are yeah you hit it right on the head they are laser focused on this thing this is not this is not like they're going down to a tropical beach for fun they're doing this so they get their certification and they have a goal they have a clear yep. schedule exactly. yeah and they're, you know, they've done this hike before or they've done hikes like this before. They know that hiking under the influence isn't a great idea. You can't fight off bears with a hammer or survive a snake bite or walk 50 miles with a gunshot wound if you are drunk. True. Also, interesting fact, um, alcohol is actually worse for you when it's cold. Really? It will feel as though it is warming up your body. But the reason that it does that is because what it's doing is it's sucking the blood away from your extremities into your uh, your internal organs that are frantically trying to process the substance. Well, actually, an offshoot of this theory suggests that they came across some psilocybin mushrooms in the woods and uh, either ate them or burned them by mistake and experienced a really bad trip together. I saw that theory. Um, one of the theories was that they had gone out to collect firewood and there were these mushrooms growing on, uh, like, on the bark of the wood. And when they had burned them for heat, it gave everybody a bad trip and they panicked. The only problem with that is that, again, you're in negative 30 degrees Celsius weather, which is not super great for mushrooms. These are summer mushrooms, yeah. <laughs> yeah, these are not... <laughs> 
these are not these are not the kind of mushrooms that would be actively growing and and healthy and happy to be there. These would have been like withered and useless, you know, bits of fungus at that point. Right. And when they're when they're leaving the tent, they're acting as a group. Yes. And uh, people on a trip don't tend to act the same way. So shrooms have a different effect on different people. Yeah. Uh, and it's unlikely that they would all kind of have the same idea and the same destination and leave the tent together. Also, it would have shown up in shown the autopsy. Up in the autopsy. Well, yep. although the autopsy, you know, we have to we have to say that yes, for people looking for it, the autopsy is questionable because it was done very quickly. All of the causes of death were hypothermia. No matter if your skull was smashed in or your chest was smashed in or you were found in the snow, your cause of death was hypothermia. I mean, it's not a bad guess. It's not a bad guess at all. But if you're looking for holes in the official story, you can definitely find a few in that autopsy. They, they may not have even bothered checking for substances and things like that. So I, I also looked into a wonderful theory about the catabatic wind. Oh, I love this one. So a catabatic wind is, first of all, it's incredibly rare, but basically what it is, is it is like getting hit with the full force of a planetary gravity. Mm. What happens is high density air comes flying down a slope, Mm -hmm. okay? What a catabatic wind does is it basically will come down a mountain at like hurricane speed. Yikes. And... It can, it can absolutely crush your bones. It can pick you up and throw you, you know, a mile away into a tree. It can absolutely do some of this damage. The only problem is that in order to actually get a catabatic wind, as, as we said, they're very rare. In order to get one, you need an incredibly steep incline that sort of empties into a bowl so that the, the wind has enough you know, it has it has enough momentum to build up and really smash. Oh, interesting! You. And the topography of where it's this not all quite happened, right. it, it it just doesn't work. What you would mm. you could have gotten a very very mild one, but nothing that would have hurt anybody. It would have been just like, oh, it's windy tonight. Uh, people really love this theory because there was a hiking accident in 1978 in Sweden. Yes, the Anaris Mountain, uh, where this is known to have happened. There is a survivor. Yep. And the injuries and the positions of the people when they were found are very similar to this group. So I can see why people lean towards that. Yeah, it's something that makes sense on the surface. Like, this is the damage that's done by Mm -hmm. a catabatic wind. This looks like it's been done to these people. But it's sort of like seeing a huge bite mark in something and saying, well, that looks like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, but... It's probably a shark. <laughs> Are you suggesting that the Tyrannosaurus Rex was involved in this? No. The other thing is that when the people fled the tent, mm-hmm. nobody was dressed for exposure at all. Right. And so one of the one of the theories around why the four hikers down in the ravine in the in the stream were found that way was that they tried to construct a bivouac shelter. And it collapsed in on them, just crushing them and burying them. Uh, Yuri Yudin, the survivor, actually believes that his friends were assassinated and that there was a state cover-up. Did you read about this? Okay, yeah, this one is hard. Yeah. Because it's from 
the survivor who's dealing with an awful lot of survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. I hate to discount this out of hand because it is Soviet Russia. And they did have some people in their group that if you really want to stretch it a little bit, maybe could have been targeted. Mm. But yeah, I, I find that one kind of hard to believe as well. Um, simply because there weren't tracks and no matter how good you are, you, you can't hide like the only tracks that were around them for miles and miles and miles were there. Came own. from the group. Yeah, exactly. That was one of the other theories that got bandied around was that um, they wandered into Mansi territory and the savage Mansi went out and killed them. And, you know, that's not the their Mansi, style, though. <laughs> no, it's not their style. And the Mansi had to deal with those accusations for years. Like this yep. was a big deal. Um to be accused of this and all that everybody was pointing out was like listen no other tracks right no weapons um, no weapons no tracks no shrapnel from bombs no no digging in the snow to recover spent rounds like absolutely no evidence of anything the theory that i read said that a member of the group was like a cia or a kgb mole yeah the suspicion here is on Semyon Zolotaryov, who's the yes. dude in his late 30s who's like, hey, fellow kids, can I join your hike? <laughs> yes, that guy. That he was using the group as cover to transport something dangerous or radioactive or illegal, and he was going to pass it off to someone. Uh, so the theory is that he was seen doing something suspicious and was forced to kill the group before being crushed to death somehow, or he ran into the people he was trying to avoid and got himself and everyone else killed. Yeah. And it is kind of tempting to think about it that way, that they were just assassinated by outside forces and then the scene was staged or cleaned or rearranged by the KGB. Um, but again, there's there's just nothing really to, to support that. And if there was, we probably wouldn't know about it. Exactly. <laughs> so. I mean, if, if there was evidence, we probably wouldn't know about it. And, and it would be more suspicious under the circumstances if... This had purely been a military search and rescue operation. Right. But it wasn't. The initial people to find the site were all their friends, their, Civilians. their fellow yeah. students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, none of those people got disappeared. No photographs were doctored. Nobody got, you know, so it's like, I, my heart goes out to, to the people who find it easier to believe. If this was a movie, that would be a totally reasonable explanation. No, I don't think so. I think... I think they'd go with something. I think they would go with the next theory, which is the Carman Vortex Street. Oh, tell me about that. Okay. Oh, this one. This one's a bit of a ride. So a Carman Vortex Street is a bunch of vortexes flow together and around each other repeatedly. So imagine like, imagine a rock in a stream. Mm-hmm. And the water that goes around that rock sort of goes around it, bends around it, and then comes back together and keeps flowing. Mm. This is used mostly in fluid dynamics, but it can create infrasound. And one of these sort of interesting sound theories is that when humans hear a certain range of sound in a certain range of megahertz... Mm -hmm. Um, it induces panic. Right. Just below what we can audibly hear. Exactly. Our brains don't know what to do with it, and all our hair goes haywire. And, and, yeah. and, and we just panic. We, we start feeling uneasy, and we run. The theory that's proposed is that a high wind going around mm -hmm. Kolat Sakal could have created one of these, 
could have created the infrasound, made everybody in the tent panic and just run to get out. And then in the mm. darkness, they can't find their way back. They, they freeze to death. The people who have the traumatic injuries got those by falling into the ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. The problem with this <laughs> is that there really isn't a ton of evidence to support that low-frequency sound can drive people into that type of panic. There's some evidence that low-frequency sound can make you uncomfortable, mm. but not to the degree of cut open a tent and run out with no clothes on and no shoes on in negative 30 degrees Celsius Russia. Yeah, that's flat-out panic, not slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> Your self-preservation instinct isn't gone. Right. It's like, oh, I feel uneasy, not, oh, dear God, I'm on fire. That's an interesting theory. It, it is. I love ultrasound theories, ultrasound and infrasound mm -hmm. theories, especially as they affect human behavior. Mm. It's just, it's fascinating science, but it doesn't really seem to apply here. Bummer. I know. I do like that one. Uh, how do you feel about parachute bombs? Yeah, that's a weird one. So the Soviet military is doing top secret weapons testing in this area. That's like a documented fact. Yep. The theory is that they were doing parachute mine testing or a bomb blast or some kind of experimental sonic weapon. The hikers were caught up in whatever. And again, that would mean that the KGB was involved and the scene was arranged because there is absolutely no evidence of a bomb or any kind of weapon in that valley. Yeah, there's no there's no shrapnel, no no signs of explosion, no anything. Now, that one that one's weird because it seems to fit a lot of the the things that seem to fit. Do you know what makes that impossible for me? Yeah. Go ahead. The state planned out their hiking route. Yeah. <laughs> so they knew that they would be in the area. It seems unlikely. That's sort of where the ammunition for this actually comes from, because there are records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time that the hikers were there. But here's the thing about parachute mines. Parachute mines detonate while they're in the air. Okay, so they don't drop down and explode. They, right. They drop to a certain height. And while they're still in the air, they blow up. This is the thing that fits the a couple of the aspects of it. They can cause heavy internal damage, but not, you know, mm -hmm. not a ton of external damage. Like basically your insides get pulverized, but your skin doesn't break, you know? Mm -hmm. And this would also explain the orbs that were floating in the sky, right? Yeah. The floating orange balls. Yep. And I, you know, I hate to poke holes in a good military conspiracy theory. Come on, come on. Let me have this. <laughs> the problem with it, especially because it is backed up by the, you know, the records of them actually testing these. Mm -hmm. But the problem with it is that there isn't extensive damage to the trees. Yep. You would see trees broken in half. You would see, you know, it, it would look like, for lack of a better phrase, like a bomb went off. Okay. Well, again, they staged the scene. And they're just really good at covering it up. So Sure. They, they brought in new trees <laughs> to plant there. <laughs> and new snow and collected every tiny piece of shrapnel so that nobody in the, in the search party accidentally stepped on some and got it in their foot or something. But, okay. I mean, it could be done. It could be done. It could be done. Yes, sure. We'll go with that. And then uh, how do we feel about animal attacks? I, I have zero problem with the belief that 
the extensive damage that was done to the faces and heads of the people who were found in the stream mm-hmm. was done by predation. Sure. But there really isn't a lot of evidence for an animal getting into their tent and attacking them. One thing we haven't talked about is that everything in the tent is in perfect order. The boots are lined up, the stove is put away, the beds are where they're supposed to be. It's just that there are no people there. It wasn't like there was a mass panic. Uh, people were throwing things around. Everybody just kind of left. Left, yeah. And left the tent in the condition that it was. Right. Uh, and I w- you would think with like a bear attack or a wolf attack, at least something would be knocked over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be something knocked over. I do like the theory that somehow a wolverine got into their tent. Okay, so I was not in team wolverine until i read that they can spray you like skunks do they have anal scent glands yes they have a musk yes and it's foul if a wolverine got into the tent and sprayed you would want to get out of the tent as fast as possible and you wouldn't care what you had on your feet i think you would care what you had on your feet because here's the thing i have been sprayed by skunks oh disgusting is it horrible it's horrible yes did you panic? Did you break a wall through your house and into the snow? It doesn't remove your self-preservation instinct. And that's my problem. Ah, well, this was maybe, maybe they have like a stronger scent. I, I don't think that there is any smell in the universe All right. that would get me to run outside in bare feet in those weather conditions. And I'm not a experienced young hiker. Well, there are no animal tracks at the scene, and the tent also didn't smell like wolverines, so I have to put that to bed, but I do, I do. I like the theory, (laughs) though. It's it's nice. I like it. I mean, wolverines are scary. They can kill moose. I've seen them stare down cars. Like, don't mess with the mustelids, my friends. Yeah. And uh, the last thing that is speaks against my beloved wolverine theory is that these guys fought off a bear with a hammer, so. Yeah. Yeah. Once once you've taken on once you've taken on a brown bear with a geologist hammer, I would run screaming into the night. But I don't think these guys would have. Do you have any more theories before we get to the the official theory? This is the thing about the official theory that I think infuriates people and brings on all of these sort of out there theories. It just doesn't make sense. It kind of fits in some areas. So this case has been obsessed over in Russia for years. Um, And when the diaries and photos entered the public domain in 2009, people really dug in. Like, you think we're bad? Uh, Amateur sleuths all over Russia were like, what does the postmark on this postcard mean? Uh, So newspapers and blogs and so forth all had theories on the evidence. And it kind of snowballed into public pressure to reinvestigate. So in 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation, and in 2020, they published their findings, uh, which was that an avalanche had occurred higher in the pass that night while the group was sleeping. They woke up when they heard it coming, they ran out of the tent as fast as they could, and six died in the cold while the other three were crushed in the snow slab when it swept them up and dropped them into the ravine where their remains were found. The avalanche missed the tent, which is why it and the footprints leading away were preserved. And it left absolutely no evidence for the searchers to see. And the pass isn't a steep slope. It's more like a saddle. So it's not like obvious avalanche country. Yes. Also, two of the crush injury victims are wearing extra layers of clothes cut off the hypothermia victims. 
suggesting that they live longer than the others, which obviously doesn't fit with dying immediately in the avalanche. So everybody hates the avalanche theory. Um, it does kind of fit in certain areas. The, the problem with the avalanche theory, the biggest problem with it is the fact that there's no evidence that an avalanche happened. Right. If an avalanche had happened, uh, the tent would have been swept away. The, the footprints would have been swept away. The trees would have been damaged. The people would have been moved differently. And, and the, the thing that really bothers me, especially about the footprints, mm -hmm. I found a source, and, and I'd like to have two sources on this as confirmation, but it looks, this is, how, this is the quote from the source, quote, all the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods mm -hmm. were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. Yep. End quote. Yep. Which doesn't imply panic. And also, how could you be walking at a normal pace in negative 30 degrees Celsius snow? Like, I... Ah. Well, remember, they left their flashlight on the tent so they could find their way back. Yeah, I saw that. Which sounds to me like they left temporarily, like they weren't sure what was going to happen. They knew they had to leave immediately, but they wanted to make sure that they would be able to get back. And again, it was something pretty serious or they wouldn't have gone out without their shoes on. Right. It just doesn't make sense. And I think that's what people keep coming back to. It doesn't make sense on a lot of levels. Yep. And then on the other hand, there's all this evidence that you just want to squeeze into a theory that makes sense. So... So there is a phenomenon um, called paradoxical undressing. Mm, I have heard about this. Which is a symptom of hypothermia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Basically what it means is that when your body undergoes hypothermia, uh, it moves in stages. First you feel extremely, extremely cold, and then you start to feel as though you are literally on fire. Like it feels as though your skin is aflame. Mm -hmm. And so my, my thought is that... During the day, we know that it wasn't the best day for them. They got lost, they were on the wrong side of the mountain, and they just sort of had to make the best of it. And it's not out of the question mm -hmm. to assume that during their making the best of it, clothing was either wet or sweated in too much or any of the other things that can lead to the onset of hypothermia. Mm -hmm. especially with how cold it was and how dark it got rapidly while they were trying to get the tent up. What would make the most sense to me is that when hypothermia set in, paradoxical undressing happened, people panicked, trying to cool themselves down. Mm -hmm. They fled out of the tent into the snow, trying to get colder because they felt like they were on fire. And then once they were able to you know, be in control of themselves again. They realized what they were doing, tried to make their way back to the tent and weren't able to. So the thing that speaks to me about this is that six of the nine absolutely died of hypothermia. Mm -hmm. The other three could have died of hypothermia and, you know, had the bodies get knocked off the cliff into the ravine or whatever. But we know that six of the nine died of hypothermia. And a few of the ones that seemed to have died later were wearing clothes that they had cut off of the other ones. Yep. Which is, to me, is that point of lucidity in hypothermia where you realize, oh no, I took off all of my clothes. I need to get warm somehow right now and just did the best they could. But by that point, you're all going to die anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the damage can be explained by that theory of the bivouac shelter down in the ravine. Because mm. if you have one of those collapse on you, it can absolutely fracture a skull. It can absolutely break ribs and not really damage your external skin because you're... Sure, it's snow. You're being crushed. You're not being struck. Right. So that's my theory. My theory is that it was paradoxical undressing brought on by hypothermia caused by overexertion trying to get the tent up in really, really bad conditions. And it doesn't explain everything, but to me that seems like the most logical explanation for what happened here. Mm. I want to know your theory. I mean, are you are you on the, <laughs> on the aliens or Yeti bandwagon? Uh, I'm not. I actually don't have a theory because there is nothing that would fit all the evidence. And I do kind of want to believe that it was weather related because just there's no there's no sign that anyone else was there. There's no sign that they were attacking each other. No. You know, I just want to think that something went terribly wrong with the weather, that they panicked. Yeah. But not so much that they were running out into the night screaming. They had a little bit of a plan, at least, because they left their flashlight on the tent so they could find their way back. Yeah. Uh, it's all just heartbreaking because it's, it's like you want to see the end of the movie where the one person who's, who huddles for warmth by that fire down at the tree line survives long enough to be found. And there just isn't any of that. It's just... Right. Nobody. And, you know, uh, there's some evidence that Semyon Zolotarov took out a notebook and pencil when he was in the snow. Yeah. And just never had the chance to write it down. He also had a camera on him, but he wasn't able to take a picture. There is, like, one picture that is developed uh, later on that looks like it's from that night, but it's just blurs. You can't really see anything obviously something awful happened to these kids and yeah whatever it was was tragic and yeah something happened and then it snowballed into just this terrible circumstance that nobody survived yeah so the russian government closed the inquiry after reaching this conclusion that nobody liked um and officially (laughs) the causes of death are hypothermia for dyatlov yuri doroshenko yura alexander zina and rustek and then they did change the cause of death uh, to injuries sustained in an avalanche for Ludia, Kolya, and Semyon. But again, compelling natural forces. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to leave you with the last entries from the group's log. This is written by Igor Dyatlov on the evening before the incident. So this would have been January 31st, 1959. Quote, We gradually leave the Auspicia Valley. It's upwards all the way, but goes rather smoothly. Thin birch grove replaces firs. The end of the forest is getting closer. Wind is western, warm, piercing, with speed like the draft from airplanes at takeoff. We're exhausted, but start setting up for the night. Firewood is scarce, mostly damp firs. We build the campfire on the logs, too tired to dig a fire pit. Dinner is in the tent, nice and warm. Can't imagine such comfort on the ridge, with howling wind outside, hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements. Yeah. And that's the Dyatlov Pass incident. So, very mild advice for time travelers. Um, yeah, go hiking in the summer. Um, but but if you do find yourself back there at on the night of February 1st, bring lots of extra warm clothing and a couple of extra tents and a video camera. Because in the middle of the night, these people are going to need help. That's a great way to look at it. 
Yeah. If, if you're going to time travel, do some good with it. And then we'll know what happened. Yeah. So if you see a Yeti, uh, that's what the video camera is for. And if you're an alien, let us know. Yeah. Send us an email. So although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in the show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by email to relative.disaster at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram, relative.disaster. All right. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange and dangerous event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? So our next disaster is going to be the Zhejiang Great Earthquake in 1556 in China. An earthquake so catastrophic, it killed an estimated 60% of the people in its region. Oh my gosh. It is the third deadliest natural disaster in history. That sounds really interesting. We will see you all on our next episode.